Hey everyone, this is David Williams, host of the Health Biz Podcast and president of Health Business Group. Usually on this show, I interview people, healthcare CEOs, political leaders, and so on, but from time to time, it's just me, like when I reviewed the Amazon Halo Band and compared it with the Apple Watch. And this is going to be one of those times as well. It's my end of the year episode. This week when everybody's on vacation, I thought I would take a look back at some of the predictions I made back in April about the COVID-19 pandemic. In September, I actually looked at uh, how the predictions had done, and now this is three months later, so I thought, you know, why not go and have an end-of-the-year look? Also take a brief glimpse into 2021, which I'm hoping is going to be a happier and healthier year. So back in April, the pandemic was raging. There were lockdowns going on throughout the Northeast and in the West, and there was really a lot of panic about what the immediate future was going to bring. And I felt at the time that I could look over the horizon a bit and see what was happening, see where things were heading. So I wrote up five different predictions for the next phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I published them on the health business blog. I tried to distill what I was seeing in Boston and also what I was hearing from my healthcare and life sciences clients uh, from our consulting business, and also my friends who are physicians and scientists who are in some U.S. hotspots and who were around the world as well. In September, five months in, so five predictions five months later, I took a look and I graded myself on how I had done. A lot of times people make predictions and then they forget about them and never, never go back and look. But I went back and looked, and overall, I, I gave myself an A minus. I actually graded each one of the predictions. Now things are changing, clearly, with the end of the year, uh, the end of the Trump era at last, and the vaccines becoming available. So figure, you know, why not take another look back and a look forward? So my first prediction, prediction number one, was that treatment and not testing were going to be key to reopening the economy. And I actually gave myself a grade of B back in September on that. So as you may remember, before the vaccine came out, the mantra was all about testing, testing, and testing. And this is the way that we were going to uh, get out of the pandemic and at least be able to get people back on the job, back to work, back to school, etc. And it turned out that I was right that testing wouldn't be the savior, but I also had overestimated how quickly the treatment would improve as of September. Now, I think this actually improved since then. You know, back in April, we had seen other countries like Germany and Singapore that had deployed testing really on a massive scale. Uh, and we have talked about millions and millions of tests in the U.S. But when I saw what was going on, I was really unimpressed. You know, there was a lot of announcements about this capacity, but there was very little follow through. And still, as of September, uh, there was a suggestion that we needed about almost 200 million tests a day to really reopen the economy. And we were only doing about 20 million. And in Massachusetts, and even in the Boston area, which was one of the leaders in testing, it was still hard to get a test if you weren't symptomatic. I used to go down to Tufts Medical Center, uh, downtown Boston, uh, because you could just walk in there and uh, get tested, whether symptomatic or not. Um, but it's $140 if you weren't symptomatic. The turnaround time was pretty quick, though. But there are big lines there, and there's still big lines if you go there. 
In other parts of the country, you're seeing test results taking a week or even longer if you could get tested at all. And uh, Bill Gates had a pretty harsh criticism of testing, he was saying that it was too few tests, were too slow to return the results, and even though people using the wrong swab, that there's no need for the big brain probe. You can do something uh, much less invasive and uh, less, uh, less troublesome for the user. So that was pretty disappointing. And you saw that this uh, absence of, of having rapid turnaround testing uh, at large scale and the weak contact tracing had hampered the ability of the scientists to inform the policymakers and the public about what works and, and what doesn't. And it meant that it was a real rapid spread of a disease in the early hotspots. There's really no expectation that somebody could go and get tested and then be totally isolated for a week or so while they awaited their results. And this also had fed confusion among the public and it undermined support for the guidelines because the guidelines seem sort of vague and random and contradictory. Now, in terms of treatments, we saw that uh, remdesivir, uh, remember that one? That was already showing promise in April. And there were a lot of non-drug adjustments that were made, uh, like optimizing mechanical ventilation, which was initially uh, overused, used too aggressively, and also turning patients on their sides. And you heard about you know different stories about how the what the impact was on the cardiovascular system, and hearing about things like cytokine storms. So I thought we were going to actually have a bunch of drugs and other innovations that were going to make COVID nineteen uh, manageable. Now the death rate actually had come down, and it's come down uh, further uh, since then. Uh, some of the old drugs like uh, dexamethasone, which is an old steroid, uh, was used uh, quite successfully, um, and that one that one was working. And then what we've seen since then, uh, and especially as the president and some of his cronies got sick, was the use of these monoclonal antibodies from uh, Regeneron. These cocktails really seem to do uh, a great job. But overall, what I saw at the time was that there was uh, basically, as of September, you know, a lot of fatigue and denial and surrender uh, were the big factors in reopening uh, the reopening decisions more than I had expected. And we still hadn't fully reopened the economy. And now in late December, we still haven't done that. With these, if we look now at the end of 2020, we can see these remarkable treatments seem to work very well, the monoclonal antibodies. Um, but we don't have that many available. And the ones that are available don't seem to be getting used that much. And testing is still problematic, as I said. The contact tracers have basically given up. And I've spoken with people who've come down with COVID-19, and they really have no idea where they got the virus. So it's just pretty much a hopeless, a hopeless task at the moment to contact trace. Now, the big story right now about reopening the economy and the real scandal is about the vaccine distribution. Certainly, the vaccines were developed a lot faster than I thought. And on the really bright side, the first vaccines that came out, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, appear to be extremely efficacious. That's really great. I was thinking that the vaccines would take longer and the first ones that came out wouldn't be that good and that would prevent us from getting the more effective ones. But these, these are effective. The problem is that vaccine distribution is going really slowly. As of December 29th, when I'm recording this, under one in 100 people in the US have been vaccinated. Now, in Israel, it's actually 10 times that. And because they're treating it like a health emergency, like a civil defense exercise, and we're treating it more as a bureaucratic or technocratic supply chain management issue. We've had no leadership at the federal level, 
and not that much on the state and local level either. I think President Biden will change that, but that's some time from now. So that was prediction number one, uh, which was the treatment and not testing will be key to reopening the economy. All right, so I didn't get that one totally right, but I wasn't so far off. My second prediction was the one that I'm actually the most proud of. And what I had said at the time in April, that was hybridization, which is a virtual and in-person mix, will be the new reality. Now, I gave myself an A-plus on that, partly because I'm proud of it and partly I guess I'm a generous grader, at least of myself. You know, at the time that I made that prediction, the consensus was that everybody was going to return to the office by summertime and get back to school in September. And that didn't happen, as you know. Uh, instead, as the spaces reopened, the hybrid models began to emerge everywhere uh, to reduce density and to decrease risk. We're seeing it with schools and businesses and physician offices and, and clinical trial. And you'd see that you know, the remote work and, and school are still happening, but people saw that the, you know, the work from home itself is no panacea and nor is uh, remote schooling. So I expect that this hybridization is going to outlive the pandemic because people and organizations are learning that a mix of both the in-person and remote is actually the best for most activities. On the healthcare side, though, I think patients are going to have to assert themselves if they want to receive the full benefits of hybrid care, because the healthcare organizations have a tendency to revert to whatever works well for them as providers, even though there's talk of patient-centric care, it tends to be actually more provider-centric. Uh, so they'll do that rather than what's most convenient and affordable for the patients. You know, in April, the rate of, of virtual visits went to 70% or so of the total visits, and then it had dropped by the summer to about 20%, and it's held around there. Maybe it's gone up slightly lately. Um, but you do see that there are some leaders that are more patient-centric. The Boston Children's Hospital is one I'll mention as an example, where they maintained their uh, rates of, of remote care at about 50%. If I look at it now from the vantage point of the end of 2020, we're still seeing we're still going to see lots of hybridization in business because people have understood that it can be effective and they can avoid the time and the expense and the fatigue of travel. And when they get together, it'll be more for a special occasion. And I expect that even as uh, management consultants who are famous for doing a lot of travel, we're going to do less travel because clients are going to understand uh, that it's not necessary to travel so much. Social activities are another matter. I think here we're going to see a return to in-person social activities in some big ways. I think the Zoom cocktail hour will be buried and forgotten. I believe that colleges are going to double down on the value of the residential experience if they want to stay in business and to be differentiated. I have uh, friends who and myself who send their students to private colleges that are expensive. It's worth it if you have the residential experience. And frankly, it's not worth it if you don't. The Zoom college is not worth it. Prediction number three is actually one that I stole uh, from my client, John Driscoll, is my co-host on the Care Talk podcast and the CEO of CareCentrics. This prediction was that uh, public health post-COVID-19 is going to be like security after 9-11. Now, I only gave myself a grade of B on this as of September, uh, but I might revise it a little bit upwards now. I remember after I started traveling soon after September 11th, there was a sudden jump 
in security everywhere at airports and office buildings and public places. It, it was really staggering. And in the following months and years, and right up until this day, security became a huge industry and also an obsession. You could do anything in the name of uh, security and justify it to take away your civil liberties or inconvenience you or charge you more money or whatever. So back originally in, in April, I had, I had said that you know, we're going to expect that public health is going to be similarly elevated the way that security had been, and it would become a pervasive part of the economy and society. And I was expecting we'd see temperature checks and maybe face mask checks and hand washing at offices and schools and public venues. And we're going to have contact tracers who would call uh, or visit our home and maybe they'd scrutinize our cell phone records. You'd have event managers and employers that would hire a, a team and devise their own plan to prevent outbreaks and to provide confidence. So we've seen this more in the private sector than anywhere. You see it at uh, private schools where their daily attestation checks are required for, for health. They have uh, temperature checks, they have masks, eating outdoors. You see on stores signs that say, you know, no mask, no service. And there's some states and counties have, have tried to put in good contact tracing programs. But unlike after September 11th, you know, there's no national approach. There's no equivalent of the Department of Homeland Security. And I think that this trend is going to open as the trend is going to continue as more venues reopen uh, eventually. But it's not yet clear if public health is going to receive additional funding and just how central it's going to be in the future. Uh, a lot of it depends, you know, on how quickly the pandemic is eventually brought under control if we get another pandemic, God forbid, or some other kind of uh, public health threat that comes along. And it depends on how things go in the White House in, in 2021. Now, if I look at this as of the end of the year, 2020, with the Biden administration coming in, he has a team that believes in government and then it can do good and that it can be effective. So they're gonna try to make public health a priority and they're gonna have some successes you're going to see strengthening of agencies like Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other agencies. They're going to be strengthened, but there's really a lot of ground to regain because in addition to these agencies being really unfairly targeted by Trump, they have screwed up, for example, what the CDC did uh, with testing at the outset of the pandemic that left us essentially blind to what was going on. I'm also encouraged that Biden has uh, appointed a strong coronavirus task force and he's just named three people to lead the vaccine distribution efforts, which will be absolutely critical. The thing, though, is that public health is still a state and local issue, mostly. And I'm just not sure where it will go, uh, what funding there will be there, what sort of long-term support it will gain. And I think you'll see private agencies, private companies taking matters into their own hands. My fourth prediction was one that made pretty much everybody uncomfortable. Prediction number four was that the federal government will grow even more powerful relative to everything else. And I gave myself a grade of A minus on this one as of September. Now, this prediction was, I guess, paradoxical. I reviewed it with a bunch of people at the time and they found it novel and also counterintuitive because after all, the feds had, had failed to prepare for the pandemic and they threw everything onto the states. The CDC, as I just mentioned, had embarrassed itself with its testing approach, and then it was sidelined. Libertarians didn't like the idea of this, neither did, neither did liberals. But what we also saw is 
the federal government has basically unlimited spending power, and it used it to prop up the economy with the CARES Act, which was over $2 trillion, which is big money. And it also pumped up the stock market. And meanwhile, the states had to come begging, quite literally, to the president to get any help. And these world-leading universities and colleges found themselves in really desperate straits and unable to reopen. Now, basically, the federal government's failures weakened much of the U.S. society more than they weakened the federal government itself. And the reason that I gave myself only an A- minus instead of an A is that I did not address what would happen relative to the rest of the world. So the federal government in the U.S. became very strong relative to other things in the U.S., but really lost international standing during the pandemic with its poor response. So the country was rated as the most prepared for a pandemic and really botched things anyway. We withdrew from the WHO. That's going to be reversed soon, but that weakened our hand. And the slow economic recovery that we've continued to see, despite the stock market gains, means that we're losing ground to China and to others. That was the view as of September. Now, at the end of December, I see that with President Biden coming in, there will be an improvement. But the other countries are not standing still, and the U.S. is unlikely to regain its preeminence quickly, if at all. And at home, the states and cities, along with many small businesses and others, remain crippled. The stimulus went out of its way, the most recent stimulus, to not to aid state and local governments. And so you're going to see this problem of the weakness of these local and state governments persist for at least a couple of years. Meanwhile, the deficit spending at the federal government level is through the roof, and no other entity can do that. But the federal government shows no signs that it needs to stop. I do think that uh, we will see universities and colleges regain uh, their position in U.S. society. They're really under threat if Trump had won again. And corporate interests will also uh, figure out how to assert themselves, especially one area of the economy where you're going to see the corporate interests do well is the pharmaceutical companies. Yes, they've been under threat for uh, price because of their high prices, but this uh, vaccine, rapid vaccine development has really made a difference in the public perception and frankly has contributed a lot of value to society, especially if we can actually get the vaccination done. And so I think uh, there's going to be a golden era uh, for healthcare, life science, for life sciences companies in particular, biotech companies, and so on. Prediction five is one that I hesitated to make because I didn't want to be too negative and too political. But this prediction number five was for the end of immigration. And as of September, I gave myself a, a grade of A on that. When you have a crisis, it present, presents a major opportunity for a government to enact some policies that they wouldn't be able to get away with in normal times. The Trump administration had never made a secret of its disdain for immigration, and it had taken some pretty dramatic steps even before the pandemic, like curtailing the H-1B program for highly skilled workers and trying to build a wall along the Mexican border. But in April, the president tweeted out, as, his, as is his want, his plan to suspend all immigration. So that's pretty darn dramatic. And even a month or two earlier, that would have drawn a lot more fire. But 
when you have lockdowns and travel bans everywhere and the virus floating around in the air, it was much harder for anybody to argue against. Now, there are some additional actions that were taken against immigration during the pandemic, like banning asylum seekers and uh, getting rid of refugee resettlement, banning international students from coming to the U.S. if their classes were not in person. That was actually, uh, that was reversed after there was some pushback. And then there's more, been more restrictions on H-1B lottery winners. Now, the, the pandemic also made the U.S. a less attractive destination for would-be immigrants, even without all those explicit actions. And that's not going to be reversed quickly. So as we look at this from the perspective of the end of 2020, we say, I say that you know, Trump's reelection would have put the final nail in the coffin for immigration. The things will change under Biden, but probably not all that quickly. It's going to take a long time to disentangle all the damage that the Trump administration has done. And there's really not a lot of consensus on immigration policy. We do know, and I strongly believe that reduced immigration is one of the biggest long-term threats to the U.S. economy and society, if not the single biggest threat. Immigration is what makes the country dynamic, and it leads to entrepreneurship and job creation. I'm involved in a lot of fast-growing businesses, and most of them were founded by immigrants. People don't necessarily realize that, but that's where a lot of the innovation, job growth, and economic growth comes from. This loss of luster for America is real. I've always seen America as a shining example on the Hill. You've had previous uh, Republican presidents who've looked at it the same way, notably Ronald Reagan. Trump clearly didn't believe we were special, and uh, a large part of the country has stopped acting like we are, and that will be reflected uh, in how we're perceived abroad. So that's it for my five predictions and how they've done since April with the check-in in September and now late December. So where do we go from here if we look ahead? Well, I'm hoping that 2021 is going to be a really good year. I think it's going to be okay at the start and maybe excellent by the end. That's by no means assured. There's a lot that could go wrong. I'm not going to get into that here since I probably already left you depressed at a time when you're getting ready to celebrate the new year. But here's my best guesses of what is going to happen. There's not going to be a sudden switch back to normal, but things actually will feel quite normal by the summer. I know people have been saying that, you know, the new normal won't be like the old normal. I actually think we are going to start feeling like the old normal by summer. On the vaccination front, it's going to sputter along uh, at least until Biden comes into office. There should be some improvement at that time, but we'll start to see the impact of herd immunity by the late spring. And also if this is a seasonal virus, which it seems to be, we should also see some improvement just from that. I do believe that colleges and high schools and elementary schools and middle schools will be back in business at a pretty normal functioning level by the fall. Business travel, I believe, is gonna stay depressed and there actually will be a new normal for business travel. Uh, where people realize that they just don't need to travel so much for meetings, but can be more productive uh, by being more selective about their travel. But I think leisure travel is going to go crazy by 2022. There's tremendous pent-up demand among those who've kept their jobs and their health during this terrible pandemic, and you can expect lots of travel and some really big parties, including some huge New Year's Eve parties 
uh, this time next year. So that's it for now. I appreciate your support of this podcast, and I wish you a happy, healthy 2021. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.